The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. If you could open your Bibles to uh, the book of Colossians. I know usually we've been in 1 Corinthians on Wednesday night, but uh, Colossians got cut a little short on Sunday afternoon. Colossians chapter 3, and I'll begin reading back in verse 1, even though we'll probably just get through verses uh, 7 and 8 tonight. Colossians 3, beginning verse 1, if then... You've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. For you have died. and Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore... What is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old man with its practices and have put on the new man, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Well, this is God's word for us uh, this evening. I just apologize once at the onset for the coughing, sniffing, hacking, and everything else. So we'll get that out of the way. As I mentioned on Sunday, uh, I'm uh, a native-born Northwesterner, but probably having more impact on my life is the fact that I am a native-born legalist. By nature, we, we love to believe that we can earn God's favor by the things that we do. Every last one of us was born a member of a native country, and of that native country, a native religion, and by that native religion, I, I do mean a form of legalism. Now, you might say, well... Antinomianism or no law is, is also very prevalent, and we might think those are, are opposed to one another, but as a quick aside, I would say if you think that fund, or if you think that legalism and antinomianism are opposites, I would commend to you a fantastic book by Sinclair Ferguson uh, entitled "The Whole Christ." And he argues that legalism and antinomianism actually share the same root. Far from being opposites, they flow from the very uh, same source. And that source is 
this idea of, uh, that, that we can in some way separate God from God's law. Now that being said, we're tempted, even as Christians on this side of things, to view a list like the list that we have in front of us through what we could call legalistic lenses. I'm tempted to look at it and, and view it as some kind of barometer with uh, how good of a Christian I am or am not and, and, and things like that. Whereas what we should view it as, and this is what I, I tried to argue for uh, on Sunday, uh, but it is after lunch and it was very warm and comfortable in here. So we'll quickly review. I want us to see texts like this not as ways that we should strive to uh, make God love us more, because he's already set his love upon you while you were still his enemy. And if now that you're a son and a daughter, or son or a daughter, you can't be both simultaneously, if you're a son or a daughter, you have his favor even more that you're united to the son. And so we live our lives not seeing ourselves as uh, those who have to then work for God to love us more. It's totally backwards. His love is set upon you. You are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. and, And he is, I don't know if you noticed it when you read the Gospels, he is well pleasing to his father. In that sense, you are welcomed, received. There's no condemnation. That's your position in the gospel. And so you might say, okay, if that's my position in the gospel, then then why does Paul give lists like he gives right here? Well, I think there's a very simple answer to it. Now that you are saved from sin, a new creature or part of the new creation, indwelt by the Spirit, those who are being shaped more and more into the likeness of the image of God, this now describes how you, in that life, as a new creature, part of the new creation, live that life. And so it's not, do this and you will live, it's, you are alive, now live in that life. And I think that while there, you might say, those sound kind of similar to each other, I would argue there's a world of difference between living in the light of God's favor, joyously seeking these things, and not seeing them as a burden, but as seeing them as a delight. John says in 1 John that his, his laws are not burdensome. Now, if I'm trying to work for God's favor, I don't know how to view them as anything other than burdensome. But if I can see them with the eyes of a, of a regenerated son, or you see them in the eyes of a regenerated daughter, you would see them as dripping with love for you. You would see the items on this list, and far from burdens, you would see them as loving commands from God, directing you towards him, 
not burning you down on your way to him. There's another piece that we need to, to emphasize. And, and that is, is this. Before you were made alive in Christ, these, and, and this is where Paul is going to start in verse 7, these were you. These were your captors. These were your soul destroyers. These were things to which you were in various forms and degrees embondaged. But now in Christ you've been set free. Therefore, do not live as though you were still in bondage to them. Live as a free man. Live as a free woman. And have nothing to do with these. And you might still say, I need yet another proof that this isn't just some detached um, list of do's and don'ts that, that is our boxes to check that somehow shape the way that I view me or others view me or the way I can pray with boldness or not with boldness or drop your eyes down. We'll get to it on Sunday, Lord willing, or the week after. But look at verse 10. You're being shaped into the image of the creator. You're, you're, you're actually, this is nothing more than basic Christian sanctification. When we talk about sanctification, when we speak of things like putting away uh, sexual immorality and anger and wrath, you could put it this way. May Christ be shaped more fully in each and every one of you. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like lists like we have here. And so please, brothers and sisters, if you're, I know it is, uh, but I'm just trying to be generous. If your heart's like mine, and that might be scary for you, and you're tempted to be to just inch your way back over to the legalistic side of things, see this as God sending his word empowered by his spirit into your life to help you. This is help. This is love. Please see it that way. Far too often we see these as the thunderings. These are love beckonings. Have nothing to do with wrath. Have nothing to do with anger and malice. Have nothing to do with slander and abusive speech. Flee the things that destroy you. And pursue Christ-likeness in every avenue of your life. So by way of quick review of through verses 5 and 6, Paul says that there are five vices to put off, and I uh, contrasted those with the five sins we looked at, and we said there's just really no difference between a vice and a sin, at least the way I would define them. So these things are to be put to death. That would involve some, uh, some Matthew 11, verse 12, holy violence that should mark the Christian life. Jesus said that heaven is taken by violence and violent men take it by force. That doesn't mean that the world suffers from the hands of, or that heaven suffers from the hands of uh, a violent world. The violent that he's talking about are Christians. There's a a violence, if you want a a fantastic book on the topic, uh, Thomas Watson wrote a book called Heaven Taken by Storm. One of my favorite 
Thomas Watson books, and it talks about the violence of prayer and the violence of going to church and the violence of all these other areas of the Christian life. Absolutely wonderful, terribly convicting, but wonderful in the end. There's a violence that needs to be offered in our lives towards these things. These things are not to be tolerated. They're not to be housed rent-free. They're not to be put up with. And on the list of things that need to be put to death would be, and we won't re-preach the whole thing, is a sexual immorality. So any form of, of deviant sexual intercourse, uh, which would be uh, clearly played out in, or described, I would guess, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. All forms of impurity, every form of wayward or um, passions in, in the wrong direction or being a person controlled by your passions, any form of evil desires, and then last but surely not least would be covetousness, which he then later defines as idolatry. By way of argumentation as to one of the reasons why those things should be put to death, well, what's very simply this, the wrath of God is coming like a freight train towards these things. You've been rescued from them, don't go back and have anything to do with them. Don't go back to the things that almost cost you your soul. You can imagine if you, I don't know why this is the thing that pops up into my head, hopefully it's not prophetic, but hope if you were uh, by accident or by intention, I don't know why you do it by intention, uh, found yourself in the middle of a very radioactive uh, environment, uh, one that would in moments cost you your life, and someone recognizing the danger ran into that radioactive situation, pulled you, in some places, kicking and screaming away from it, explained the danger, told you of the death. Paul says, why go back? Why go back to that thing that just you were just saved from? If you were pulled from a burning house, why run back into it to finish going to sleep? Paul says, have nothing to do with it. The wrath of God about took your soul. You should have nothing to do with these things. So for tonight, we want to consider five more sins to be put away. If you look at verse 08, he mentions that there's that, that key verb that's going to drive this list. These are things that, be put, that need to be put away. But he inverts the order. Uh, The last time, verse 5, he gives you the things that are to be put to death, the list, and then the rationale for the reason why they would be put away. In verse 7, he gives you the rationale for why the next five would be put away, and then in verse 8, the list. So it's a a bit chiastic with its center focusing on verse 6, the wrath of God, and its center uh, being centered on, there's a redundancy, on verse 7, These were things in which you once walked. Uh, Paul says, this was the old you. He'll go on in verse 9 to further explain what he means by the old uh, man. I think a lot of the translations use self. I'll, I'll explain, I think, on Sunday afternoon that I think that's a terrible translation. 
And yes, in case you were wondering, the ESV does say self. It's not perfect, but it's just really, really good. So the old self, ah, not really good. The old Adam. The old man. That was the old you. You too once walked in these things. The idea of walking be that that normal ebb and flow of life. You lived in this. You breathed in this. You loved this. And those of you who were saved later in life can think back and say, many decades were wasted loving things that are on that first list mentioned in verse 5. You know what it is to have walked long in those sins. Now, what a grace. Are, there's these two words in verse 7 that just uh, overflow with the, the abundant grace of God. Can you see them? You too once, not anymore. This used to be, but it isn't now. This is history, not presence. The things that perhaps you thought would, you would never be free of is a, now under the title once, but not now. What a grace that God has pulled you from the fire and set you free from old masters so that you could rightly say you, this was once and then walked is in the, it, it, well, it, it's a past tense. This is not where and how you walk now. Blessed aorist, you might say, if you looked at the Greek text, it once was me in the way that I walked. It's not a present tense verb. It's not me now. What a grace. Now, that being said, that that's the old you, that's the, that's the you under the original Adam. That's you when you were a son or daughter of wrath. That's you when you, if I could steal from uh, Ephesians chapter 2, when you lived under the power of the prince of the power of the air, and you were loving your disobedience, and you were like a little wrath baby about to grow into a wrath adult. He saved you then. That was then, you're a new creature now. Now that we no longer live in those things, verse 8, how do we now interact with them? Well, you must, but now, so there's a once, a back then, and a now, a present, you must put them all away. The idea uh, behind that verb to put them all away, you could, you could almost envision it like this. Uh, if your clothes were covered in absolute, wretched, rank filth, you would want to, uh, well, put them all away. You, you wouldn't say, you know what, it's, it, the smell isn't that bad. You get used to it after a while. No, no, put them 
far from you. This was when you came home like this as a kid. This is where mom did not allow you into the house in such a condition until such a condition was remedied. So these, these filthy clothes of the way we once lived need to not just be removed, but thrown and burned and the ashes buried is kind of the, uh, well, very loose uh, translation and understanding. If you just look at verse 7 in the beginning of verse 8, you once did this, you lived in them, but now these things must be put off. Paul has just taken something from you. He has just robbed you of so many excuses. Now, it's a blessed thievery that he's committed against you, but he's just taken away from your toolbox of avoiding sin excuses like this. Well, I've always been this way. Paul says, not anymore. Well, I was raised this way. Didn't argue with that, but it's not an excuse now. Well, I... You don't understand, like, I, I'm just hardwired this way. I, you know? Paul says, there was a once and a now, and they're different. And I can't tell you how many folks sit down. At, it doesn't really matter what they're destroying, uh, whether it's their marriage or uh, their career or their spiritual life. I could tell you, Charlie could tell you, how many times blame shifting and excuse making just run rampant. We're looking for some piece of our environment to blame to excuse away our current sin. Paul says, nope. That was then, put it off now. He doesn't say, put it off. I mean, unless you've really been like this for a long time, in which case, I, I guess, just roll with it. Try to minimize it, I don't know. He doesn't say if you had a, you know, if you had a perfect upbringing, then you can put these things off. If, you're up, if your upbringing is just less than perfect, I mean, you really are a victim. I'm not downplaying how difficult being raised was, for, for, for several. But Paul says that was then and this is now. And for the good of your own soul and in the new life you have in Christ, put them away. You might say, but I went to public school. Not an excuse. You might say, I was homeschooled. <laughs> Depending, we all pick something in our past to try to blame. Paul says, stop this. Put it away. Put it away from you. Have nothing to do with it any longer. Now, what are the things I know you're like, please get to the list. All right, I'll get to the list. The first thing on the list of Paul's list of how to make friends and influence people. Anger. Now, I checked all these into Greek because I was hoping by anger he meant something else. He didn't. 
So when Paul uses this word anger, he's going to uh, contrast it a little bit with the word that's going to follow it, wrath. And so we, we do need to do a little premature um, nuancing, at least to, to spell the difference between the two. Uh, it seems like anger would be, in this instance, more indicative of a chronic or a settled state. The person who's just, you, could, you just define them as they are an angry person. This person is always mad at someone or something or several someones or several somethings all simultaneously. They're always, uh, well, for, in their terminology, perhaps in a bad mood. Now, one of my pet peeves, and we're all really good at it, is like, uh, do you remember the, the there's a, a it's, it's a lovely little scene early in Genesis, like Genesis 1 and 2, where Adam stands as, as vice regent over God's creation and, and the animals are paraded in front of him and he, as an exercise of authority, renames the animals. You might be like, where is this going? We do that with our sins. We rename them. And so, instead of anger, when anger walks by, we say frustration. The Bible says nothing about frustration. Or we say hangry, a hunger-induced anger that is explained because I have a calorie deficit right now, and everyone around me should know not to mess with me when I'm intermittently fasting. Or we use words like flustered. Or, my personal favorite, I don't know if it's a Northwest thing, or just a weird my family thing, we take the word flustered and frustrated. And they had a baby, and we called it flustrated. It's not a real word. I'm realizing out in the rest of the world, but you understand it. We often talk about our sin with other words, hoping that it somehow excuses it. When you lose it at your kids, they know it's anger. But if you say, dad's just frustrated, and they're like, oh, oh, well, it was just frustration. <laughs> My bad. I get spanked when I do that. But, but for you, it's just frustration. Your kids, not me. I don't get, anyway. You understand what I'm saying. We cause, we, we, we just, we, we refuse to deal with the sin in our life by continuing to rename it. And we're good at it. Even in this odd game we play, because guess who's the only one who's really fooled? The person doing the renaming. Your kids know it. Secret, your spouse knows it. Everyone can see it but you. And if it's not a sin, I don't got to repent of it. We do it all the time. We're masters of it. With anger... I say, I don't know, I just get angry all the time. I don't know why. Anger is something that we use to gain control of situations or others around us. It causes or forces people to, I'm sure, I'm sure this wouldn't make any sense in a language outside of English, to, to walk on eggshells around us. And Paul says, Christian, Man, woman, who has new life in Jesus Christ, being made into his image, Christ isn't like that. So put it away. 
Put away the anger that you use to control people. Put away the anger you use to try to, to, to make your own oddly peaceful uh, environment around you. Put away the anger you use to exert power and authority on others. Put it away. Your Savior isn't like that. Isn't it a wonderful thing that Christ isn't angry? He would have so many reasons <laughs> to be angry with us. But he's patient and he's long-suffering. Put it away. Second on the list, wrath or rage, some of your trans. I actually think, I actually think rage is a really good translation. It, it means the kind of the more explosive anger. It's the, the person who says that they have a, a hair trigger temper. That's another renaming trick that we do. Temper, man, I looked in the concordance in the back of my Bible, didn't find temper, doesn't talk about it. Just call what it is, rage or wrath. Explosive anger. Now, the person who engages is in explosive anger, fly off the handle kind of anger, that this person often is blindly convinced that their anger is oddly and in a weird perverse way accomplishing something good. Rarely do they think, I'm going to destroy my life. No, what they think in the moment is, I'm going to set things right around me. And so I'm going to shout. I'm going to throw stuff. I'm going to, he'll get into it later. I'm going to use vocabulary that I have no business using to try to bring things into uh, conformity. And often, even as Christians, we can think it is a, being upset that with, with the sin of others that then merits this. It, it doesn't. James chapter 1, verse 20 says, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That is a sobering verse. Uh, uh, Galatians 5.19 says, The works of the flesh are evident. The first one on the list, fits of anger. Maybe sometimes you can say like, Well, I've got righteous anger. Really? I don't think righteous anger would say some of the things that you're saying or throw things or whatever that it is. But uh, some would even quote Ephesians 4 in defense of themselves and say, Paul says, be angry and don't sin. I think I've come near or close to the border of righteous anger once or twice accidentally. All the other times, it was just sinful. That's all it was. There's no excuse for it. Galatians 5.20 says of uh, fits of anger, it shares a company with idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife and jealousy. Sometimes you can, you can kind of tell the merits of a person by the friends they hang out with. You can tell the merits of anger by the friends it hangs out with in Scripture. It's the mark of a fool in Proverbs. It shows up with a list that includes sorcery in the New Testament. Brothers and sisters, anger, whether it be slow, smoldering, um, that doesn't explode towards those, but just kind of flavors all of our interactions or the explosive life of the handle anger, whichever version of it that you 
that, that you, I'd say suffer from, that's not the proper way of saying it. Whichever one you sinfully give into, put it away. Put it away. It will ruin your relationship with your spouse. It will ruin your relationship with your children or grandchildren, your coworkers, your neighbors. And more than that, it, it's, it's an offense against the God who saves you. Put it away. Thirdly, malice. The list just keeps getting better and better. The word for malice here means a, a, a mean-spirited or vicious attitude or disposition, um, uh, ill will or malignity. And oddly enough, the word that Paul uses for malice here in uh, verse 8, it, it, it's related to the word for wickedness in the Greek, which gives you a little bit of a hint of well, their perspective on what this thing is, a malice rather than it can have times where it explodes or uh, boils over into taking negative actions on people. There's something where you could do an action and the way we talk about it is like, well, you did that just to spite them. Spite would be a really closely related word. But the thing with malice is it often stays in here it often flavors or taints or stains the way we see other people, the way we view them. And sometimes it'll eke out in a little emphasis on a word, a little tint, a little upturn on the end of a sentence, a little question mark at the proper time in talking to someone else. But at the heart of malice, is this desire for things to go badly for someone else. You might say, oh, that's kind of a wicked thing. Well, that's why the word's related to being wicked. But I think we might be more familiar with it than we think. Have you ever just wanted in your soul for someone to publicly be seen as the fool we know them to be. I guess maybe not. I guess I'm the only one who's ever like thought that. Like, man, I really hope that their scene is wrong. And me is right. But them, mainly them is wrong. Spouses do this pretty regularly in some situations. The desire to for their for the other to be seen as wrong or failing or errant or uh, or just not as smart or not as right or not as holy, malice at the, at the heart of it desires for that to be seen with the other person. So rather than uh, being the gracious covering of other people, desiring for it to be seen by others. Peter O'Brien says that malice, it, uh, it depicts the havoc of human society that is often brought about by evil speaking. Now he's going he's gonna to direct, it's interesting that all of the things that he mentions here on this list are in some way related to this wretched thing. Which is, which as Jesus said is, well it has a, like a pipeline that comes out of this thing. But all of these in the second list have to do with what comes out of the heart 
and out the mouth. The first list, not as much, sinning in other ways, either with our bodies or with our eyes or, or you know, with, with, with various things. But this list, think of how many angry words have been said or angry silences have been caused to feel. How many explosive, wrathful things we might say in a moment of anger or with malice, the whisperings or the snide comments or the, the joke that we knew wasn't a joke and they knew wasn't a joke, but I laughed at the end of it so I can't get in trouble for saying it, right? Proverbs talks about the fool who says something true and cutting and then says at the end, was I not joking? We do this. We engage in um, sarcasm that isn't playful anymore, but just sarcasm that lives up to its real name, the, to tear the flesh. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, put it away. Put it far from you. If you see this, um, this desire in your heart, this is negative towards others, plead to God that he would root it out. Probably the biggest temptation, there's going to be two of them with regards to malice. Those in your, uh, who are in your immediate life who are extremely successful in ways that you wish you were but aren't quite as successful as them, malice creeps in there. Another place, and this is probably the harder of the two. Oh, I don't know if one's harder than the other. This one's also hard. Uh, someone who's grievously sinned against you. It can be really hard to not be malicious when you, because, because there's that piece of truth, I've been wrong. And it's not even like debatable. It's, it's re, it really did happen. You really were horribly sinned against. That's not debated, but we use that truth to then kind of leverage our way into justifying wanting ill for them. It's a dangerous, sneaky sin that starts out with a bit of truth and grows into something wicked. Brothers and sisters, put it far from you. Fourthly, I know this list is just so much fun. Slander. Slander is speech that degenerates, or, yeah, no, not degenerates, denigrates, there we go, I can read, denigrates or defames, reviles or disrespects. Now, often there will be a question that arises what the difference between slander and gossip is. My rudimentary definitions would go something like this. Gossip is often something that is in part or whole correct or true, but said in ways or to persons that it ought not be said. So if the thing is true but is being said about someone else over here uh, to people who are not part of the immediate solution to helping this, it would qualify as gossip. So sometimes we think, it's not gossip. They really did it. You're like, no, I'm not debating if they did it. I just don't know why it's their business to know all this. It's spreading a negative view about someone. 
Gossip is, um, it, well, it, it really could be an f- outflow of maliciousness as well. A, a desire to, for someone else to be painted negatively, and that can sometimes either be to prop ourselves up or just kick others down. Slander, on the other hand, is something that isn't true about someone, in whole or part, and um, is meant to take them down. So gossip, often true, but said to people who are not part of the solution uh, to work on it, that's gossip. Slander being things that are not true. It doesn't have to be all the way untrue. We just sometimes bend the edges of it and aim it in certain different ways. First Peter 2, verse 1, uh, Peter says, Put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. So Peter, in speaking to the church on what life in Christ looks like, oddly enough, pairs in the same list Malice and slander as well. Peter O'Brien says of slander, any type of vilifying of man, either by lies or by gossiping. So he's going to tie both those ideas together, that it can be the spreading of what is true or the spreading of what is untrue could be under that bigger umbrella of painting others negatively. Uh, This would be to break both the ninth commandment, in lying about other people, but it would also be breaking that sixth commandment. It actually is tied into the commandment not to murder. We often murder in our hearts by painting others wrongly or negatively. If you look at how the Bible uh, addresses those uh, uh, applications of murder, sometimes we don't physically assail them or hurt them or harm them or seek to kill them But with a sharp tongue, we can just slice and dice. Now, in our modern culture, the internet has made this already decent-sized fire into a burning dumpster fire of nonsense. Sometimes, and I've been accidentally guilty of it just from being lazy, you share something without researching to see if it's true. It goes out. You find out later, that was not true at all. And I was one helping to push it just a little further. Those are some innocent ways, and there are other ways where we're uh, far less innocent or um, evolved with it. Fifthly and lastly, uh, put off then obscene talk from your mouth. Now, this one's a little um, more of an obscure reference. Obscene talk, I would hear that and think Paul is, Paul is saying, don't say the words that, that your mom, if she heard you say them, would wash your mouth out with soap. We've all, we, we all know what, like, what soap did your mom need? He was like, Irish Spring. Like, we, we all knew which one it was. And uh, we always thought the one our mom used was worse and the one our neighbor's mom used was not nearly so bad. Uh, but nonetheless, we would tend to think of it as that. Saying uh, low-brow, wrong, cursing or swearing kinds of words. And Paul's saying, hey, don't cuss because uh, as Christians don't do that. No, well, I, I'm sure that that is part of it. I don't think that's the extent of it. 
So the, the word that the ESV translates obscene talk, which you might say, well, all right, no bad joking, guys, come on. The NASB, now don't tell Brian I said this. Man, does it get it way better. It hurts me to say that, but it does. It says abusive speech, at least the 95 version uh, that I looked up. So is that what, Nathan, I don't know which one you've got in front of you, but there you go. So the 77 had something else, I believe. The 95, I didn't, I didn't uh, think about the, of the 01 or whatever it was. Abusive speech. Now you could see how that would also encompass the words your mama told you not to say. That's included. But are there other ways to abuse with our speech beyond the words that would have got you a one-way ticket to Irish Spring? Yeah. Yeah, there are. There's ways in which we berate or deride people with our mouth. I'll say that when you're growing up and you're young, the most likely candidate is probably your siblings. When you're married, it's your spouse. It can also be coworkers. But it tends to be those people that are close, like the closest to us. And so the guards or the, or the um, presentation of um, not wanting to offend them kind of wear down over time. It's, so, it's, I, I, it's kind of fun uh, in a weird way to watch you know, a young man and a young lady start to date, so polite, doors are held open, car doors opened, I mean, and you're like, just wait, that'll wear over time. And she would say, he would never say anything bad, or, oh, no, he's a sinner too, she's a sinner too. And over time, we let those guards drop. And sadly, um, there are things that are said that are just, there's no other word for it, wickedness. Unbridled wickedness. And the more you know someone, guess what? The, the tongue in your mouth has been sharpened by years and now I know that person and I know where they're vulnerable and I know where they're self-conscious and I know where I can just drive it deeply. Paul says, Christian, have nothing to do with that. Have nothing to do with it. Do not berate your spouse. Do not scream at your kids. Don't shout down uh, others in your life. Don't cuss people out. You are part of the new creation in Christ. And verse 10 says you are being renewed more into the likeness and the image of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That, would, that transformation includes our mouth, but that's just a symptom. This thing needs to be changed.
So if, if I have a couple that sits down and they think, well, the problem is sometimes I scream at my wife or I scream at my husband. Okay, oh, you're right, that's not good. But the bigger problem is the heart that thinks those things. It's not that you said what you didn't mean. That's not the problem. You said exactly in that moment what you meant. That's the problem. And if you think of the way that Christ speaks to us, his bride, have you ever heard an abusive word from him? Never. Christ isn't like this, church. Therefore, we as Christians strive to not be like this. Now, you might look at this list and be like, man, this list is a huge bummer. What do I do with all of the ways that I've been angry, wrathful, malicious, slanderous, and abusive in my speech? I don't think there's anyone who's like, I went 0 for 5 through that list. Like, scot-free. If that's what you're thinking, you go back and listen and think through and pray through. And like, Lord, show me where. Uh, but for those of us who are like, man, each and every one of those kind of hits home in different ways. Call them what they are. Don't explain them away. Call sin, sin. That's what it means to confess. To say the same as is what the word confession means. So repent to God. And to the others in your life that, that, to which you need to repent, seek his forgiveness in theirs and pray that he would change your heart by his word. We're not looking for, and I know this might seem like a huge bummer, but I hope it's like a little bit of hope in there. We're not looking for mere physical adaptation. We're looking for true heart transformation. So if I still feel all those things and I just bite my lip and storm out, like, okay, yeah, maybe slightly better than ripping someone's head off verbally. But the heart must be addressed. That, that, that's, that's what God sees and needs to transform. And the, the, the hope that I think is just flowing in this text, your mind like, well, I haven't heard hope yet. Like, all right, well, here's a little hope. These are things that can and must be put off, which means it's possible. So if you've believed the lie, I'm an angry person, I'm always going to be an angry person, do not believe that lie any longer. If you believe I run my mouth, haven't had success stopping it yet, so I'm just, that's me. You're a new creature. Not only is it possible to throw these things off with God's help and, God, and the Spirit's work in your life, it must happen. We don't, th- th- this, is the, this is the old man that is being put off and the new man that is being renewed in the knowledge of Christ. There is help and God's truth to change and transform us more and more into the likeness and image of Christ so that you might be able to look back a year from now or years from now and say, man, look at what God has done from then until now for his glory and for for my good and the good of those in my life. You don't 
have to be stuck. We, 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 we're often so worldly in the way that we view these things. We either think there's no hope of change or the only hope of change is to kind of mask them over and come up with like tips and tricks to, I'm going to count to 10 in my head backwards and hope. Okay, so you can count. Whoopee. That doesn't change the heart. But you know someone whose specialty is changing the heart. You know someone who has both the required power as well as the required willingness to transform you in the inner man. And so don't don't believe for a moment that if you go to him in prayer, pleading with him and seeking with him, Lord, give the bread of helping me put this sin off. He will not give you a stone. Don't believe that. He's not a harsh master that just says, well, whatever, you've done a long time, I'm kind of done with you, figure it out, or don't. He is a ready help in time of need. He loves transforming sinners more into the image of his son. He delights to do it. So he's not against you. (laughs) He's the one who's commanding these things. He's the one who's telling you to put it off by his power and to, to, well, he's going to get to a whole other list, uh, I think starting in verse uh, 12. There's going to be a whole list of, and now put on as God's chosen ones, a whole new set of clothes. Get rid of the nasty old stained wretched ones and there's a whole new way of living to be embraced by the Christian. So Christian, I I hope you can look at this and say, by God's help and the Spirit's work, I am being transformed away from this, able to put it off, able to put it to death, and able to grow more into the likeness and image of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, please be at work among us. A sobering text, O God. And yet you are not surprised that we need your desperate help. You're not surprised that our hearts wrestle with these things and at times fail miserably with these things. In fact, you sent your son into the world to die for such sins and to set us free from them. Please be at work in our church. Please be at work in our own hearts. Help us by your spirit to put away anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech. For your glory, please do it. And for the good of your people. We ask it in our Savior's name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.